Well, good morning, Lamb's Chapel. Man, I'm glad to be with you guys today. It is just my utmost privilege and honor to be back here in Burlington with you today, not as a guest speaker, not as a candidate, but as your pastor. I am just so humbled. I'm so honored to be in your midst, and uh, we're excited. You know, weeks ago, we were deciding about whether or not to come to Burlington, and people reached out to us, and they shared with us, they reminded us of the wise words, the, the sage counsel of that great theologian, Jody Messina, who, who's, who sang, Heads Carolina, Tails California. Now, we may or may not have used a double-headed quarter, but make no mistake, we know that it was God's will for us to be uh, here in North Carolina, and it is just an honor. Uh, Now, I am here solo. My family is not with me yet. We made the decision to leave the kids in school a little bit longer. It's real tough to pull them out of school, middle of semester. So I'm going to be with you for a month, and then I am flying back to California, where I have rented an RV. Yeah. And we're going to load that puppy up. And when it's loaded, there's really nothing left to do but, you know, watch that Robin Williams movie, and then down the road we'll go. (laughs) And it's just going to be the great American road trip. You know, me, the missus, three kids, a -a burn-a-doodle, and a bearded dragon, and off we go. Some of you are going, what's a -a burn-a-doodle? Some of you are going, what's a bearded dragon? What, you know? First things first. A -a burn-a-doodle is a a a crossbreed. It's part Bernese mountain dog and poodle. Okay, some of you are like, is that a California thing? Maybe, maybe. Uh, The bearded dragon is a lizard that we bought for our son some months back. It's a long story, but he's about that long. He's going to get to be about that long. And what you need to know about this bearded dragon is uh, his name is Needles, and he eats an ungodly amount of crickets. You, you have no idea how many crickets these things consume. I remember we bought this thing the week of my 21st anniversary. I've been married for 21 years. We celebrated that. Thank you. Thank you. My wife, Deanna, deserves a medal. But uh, I remember I woke up on our anniversary. I showered. I got dressed, put a little cologne on, you know, anniversary day. And I went over. She was still asleep there. And I, I, I bent down. I kissed her on the forehead. And I whispered into her ear, happy anniversary, baby. I'm going to buy crickets. And that's where we are right now. I don't know where you are in your marital experience, your family existence. We are in the cricket buying, RV traveling, learn to speak North Carolinian phase. That's where we are right now. And so I am the scout. I am the advanced team. I'm out here. I'm learning the customs and the culture and everything. And I am sending back west, you know, important communiques, some valuable intel to prepare my family for the move to North Carolina. And I'm sharing insights with them like, you know, uh, uh, try to begin working the word y'all into your everyday vocabulary. Um, You know, when you get out here, don't ask people where to buy arugula. You don't need that. Just let it go. Eat the fried stuff. It's good. Um, you know, <clears throat> letting them know, hey, if, if anybody says these words to you, we'll bless your heart. They're not being nice. That's, that means you need to do some self-reflection. That's what that means. But we are just delighted to join the Lord's work here at this tremendous, tremendous church. We've been so blessed by the countless messages, uh, all of you reaching out to us. You've made us feel just like family. You are just the sweetest folks that we've ever met, along with our friends in California who are watching right now. So, 
glad to be here and thank you very much. I have given a lot of thought and spent a lot of time in prayer over my first message to you as pastor. And I asked the Lord to direct me to a text, and I believe that he has today. So would you take your Bibles and join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is a new chapter for you, for me. I'm coming into a new church. You got a new guy up here. We are about to turn the page. We're about to venture into some new territory. Now, just in case you were worried about this guy from California bringing in weird ideas and things like this, you need to understand something. I sought and prayed for a church that shared the same values that I have. And these are values that I see at Lamb's Chapel, that you are focused on leading people to Jesus, making disciples, lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. That's what I want. That's what I'm all about. So philosophically, there's not a lot new here. All right, we are simpatico. We are on the same page. But no church, no pastor has arrived. Amen? And so we've all got to move forward. We've got to take it forward. We've got to keep going. We have to keep pursuing the things of God and grow together. The question is, how? How do we do that? Should we, should we bring in a bunch of consultants? Should we read a bunch of books on church growth strategy? Should we start a bunch of new programs here? Should we study what they're doing, you know, down at the church of what's happening now and adopt their practices? Or you think maybe we should look at Scripture? Should we look at the Word of God, perhaps, to see what God wants to say about His church and how He wants us to operate right here? And in your New Testament, there are a number of epistles, letters written uh, mainly by the Apostle Paul. And in these letters, there are included a number of rebukes. There are a number of corrective measures. There are some, uh, some admonitions leveled at specific churches. And the goal, the objective of Paul in these rebukes is to correct these churches so that they will become more like the type of church that God wants them to be. But there is one letter that Paul wrote in which no rebukes appear. There is only affirmation of this church because this particular church is doing it right. They are getting it done and they're doing it God's way and that's the church at Thessalonica. And when you find a church like that in scripture, it behooves any modern church to prick up their ears and to pay attention and take note of their pattern and their profile. And that's this church right here. This is the second letter Paul wrote of 13 epistles. The first letter he wrote, he wrote to Galatia. If you've read that, you saw Paul say things like, oh, foolish Galatians. Can you imagine? He writes a letter to a church. What if he wrote a letter to this church? He said, you foolish Burlingtonians. You silly Mebanians. You know? That's what he said to them. And as with other letters where he starts off and he says, I thank my God for you. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He doesn't say that to Galatia because they've ticked him off. He basically says, I don't thank God for you. You've abandoned the gospel. You better get things right. And this letter that we're going to look at today, 1 Thessalonians, is the exact opposite. It is just gushing praise on this church because they are doing it. They're doing the stuff. And so we're going to look to the scriptures today and we're going to look at this church. Now this is not a perfect church. You know how I know it's not a perfect church? Because there's no such thing. There is no such thing as a perfect church. And the reason for that is very simple. They all have people in them. 
and people are imperfect and therefore churches are imperfect. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll just screw it up. And so this is not a perfect church, but it is a model church. And I'm going to give you today six marks of a model church. We're going to look at that together. Would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, so excited to be here at the Lamb's Chapel. God, I am excited about the future, what, hold, what you hold ahead uh, in store for, for us together. And as we journey forward, we want to do it your way. We don't want to follow the wisdom and the ways of man. We want to do it the way that you designed for us to do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As we dive in here, we should note that Paul came to Thessalonica back in Acts 17. You can read about his encounter there. And as was his habit, Paul started at the synagogue. Every city he'd go to, he'd go to the synagogue. He would go after the low-hanging fruit. And he would preach the gospel to the Jews, find some common ground, because he was a Jew. And so that's what he did. And many Jews, we read, got saved. He then went into the city. He started to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and many of those got saved. And revival was underway in Thessalonica, and people didn't like it. The powers that be didn't like it. There was an uproar over Paul. And so he was violently removed from the city. And so now you've got all these converts... They're new to the faith. They've been under the teachings of Paul for a very short time. Now he's gone. They have to carry on without their pastor. They are a church functioning without a pastor. Some of you are thinking, maybe we should try that. It's too late. I already bought a house. Anyway, (laughs) that's the situation that they're in. Paul left there. He went from Thessalonica to Berea, then on to Athens. When he's in Athens, this young guy, a ward of his named Timothy, catches up to him. He says, Timothy, I want you to go back to Thessalonica and bring back a report. I want to know how everything's going since I've left. Timothy goes back. Lo and behold, they're just blowing and going. I mean, they're on fire. And and, and revival is still going on. It's even greater than it was when Paul was there. And he goes and he finds Paul, who is now in Corinth, and he tells him, you're not going to believe it. They are killing it in Thessalonica. And so Paul sends a letter from Corinth to the church in Thessalonica. And that's the letter that we're reading today. And here's what we observe in the introduction of that letter. Number one, and by the way, I don't know if you're a note-taking church, okay? But I would love for you to take notes uh, from time to time. I'm going to have some points up here on the screen. You feel free to write them down. We may give you something that you can fill in at some point. We're going to look at that. But just write down anything that strikes you that you think is worth hanging on to. But the first point is this. This church, they are saved. They are saved. Now, that may seem obvious to you. They're saved. Okay, well, they're a church. I mean, if they're in the church, aren't they saved? Well, one would hope, right? One would hope. But Lord knows there's a lot of people that attend church that are not born again. They're not believers. But by definition, it is true that the church of Jesus Christ is comprised in the eyes of God of Christians. They are redeemed people. That's by definition what the church is. This assembly was an assembly of redeemed, born-again Christians. And there there is a trend in church growth today that we have to be careful of, which is to look at the church as, as kind of an opportunity to do, uh, to do outreach 
Like the church is the place where we primarily do outreach, okay? Now, I understand there are going to be people who are non-believers that come into our midst in a church setting, and sometimes they will hear the gospel here, quite frequently in fact, and they can respond to it. But however, God's design is not that the church be the place where evangelism primarily happens. Where does it happen? It happens out there. You guys go out from here. What are we to do here? In the assembling of the saints, we are coming to do what God has designed for the church to do. We are coming to gather, to worship. Hello. We are coming to study the word, which is what we're doing now, to pray together, to sharpen one another, to be equipped so that we can go out and do ministry. And of course, to fellowship. That is the function. But the church is, by definition, the saved. Now I want you to look at verse one. Here's how Paul starts. He introduces himself. He says, Paul... Sylvanus and Timothy, that's the missionary team, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now notice he doesn't say the church at Thessalonica. He says the church of the Thessalonians. So what that tells me is that Paul is not equating the location with the church. What is the church? It's the people. It's the people. You you remember this? Remember this? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. And there y'all are, right there, okay? And so the church is people, okay? And he says these people are in God the Father. Now that designates them as being saved. These are born again. Um, You can be in a building and not be saved, but if you are in the church, the church in God's eyes, you are in God. And Paul adds a, a vital theological addition to that. He says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in God positionally, but you are also in Christ. In fact, you must be in Christ, meaning you have recognized your sinful need. You have put your faith in Jesus. His spirit indwells you, and you are immersed in the body of Christ and regenerated into him. And so that's who you are. You are in Christ, and therefore you are in his church right there. Uh, If you're in this building, you're not a Christian, just because you're inside this building. Being in a church building doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. All right? You must be in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't just believe in God and be a Christian. You gotta believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him, amen? Now, there are recent polls that have kind of bummed out a bunch of evangelicals lately, there are polls that suggest that, that the numbers of professing born-again Christians in America, it, that number shrinking. There are fewer professing born-again Christians in our country. And a lot of Christians wring their hands at that and they just lament over that. And I look at those numbers, I go, okay, all right, that's fine, that's fine. Now, that doesn't mean I'm okay with fewer people becoming Christians, but I look at those numbers and what I see is people are simply being more honest about their situation. I think there used to be a lot of people who said, I'm a Christian, and all they meant was, I go to church. I was raised in church. Uh Uh-huh. And now, they're being a little more honest about, I just wanna do what I wanna do, and I don't need to identify with the faith in order to do what I wanna do. And so they're just being, they're putting the cards on the table, and I think that's good. Let's put our cards on the table. Let's understand where we stand. Because now, I don't have to fight through this religious facade that you've wrapped yourself in to tell you about your need. You know your need on some level. You've already admitted where you're at. I grew up in a very religious community. My dad's a pastor, still is. 
He's in his 70s. Hopefully you get to meet him one day. And he, he would tell me about our, our area that we lived in, very religious community, a lot of non-believers in religious circles in that community. And he said, son, you gotta get people lost before you can get them saved. And so people need to come to grips with their need. And the people in the Thessalonian church were a surrendered, saved people. They were not merely religious. They were redeemed. Let's move on here. Second point, they are servants. They are servants. We read Paul as he goes on. He says, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then in verse 3, Paul highlights Three things in a believer's life that really just just sets them apart. Look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. I want you to underline faith. And labor of love. Underline love. And steadfastness of hope. Underline hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You got faith, love, and hope. Have you ever heard those three words in a sentence together? Quite frequently, right? These are prime characteristics of the Christian life. Now, I want to break these phrases down one by one. He starts off, your work of faith. What does he mean? Paul is referring to the work that is produced by your faith. That's the implication here. Did you know that your faith produces works? Your faith is not merely your fire insurance. It should have evidence. There should be something produced by that. What did James say? He said, faith without works is... Dead, right? Dead. Does that mean you got to have works to be saved? Is that what that means? No. No, that's not what he's saying because we have other scripture that helps us interpret that. But clearly James is talking about two kinds of faith. There's a living faith. There's a dead faith. There's a faith that's good for something. There's a faith that's good for nothing. The first faith is authentic. It saves. And oh, by the way, it's characterized by works. The second faith is it's a dead faith. It's not a faith in Christ. It's not authentic. And it's good for nothing. And it has no works that gives it evidence. And so this work is produced by faith. Ephesians says that for by grace you were saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. Amen? But he goes on and he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So you are not saved by works, but brother and sister, you are saved for works. That's right. And then he says, in the labor of your love, what is that referring to? The labor of your love, that is the labor produced by your love. Just like your work is produced by faith, your labor is produced by love. All genuine love produces labor. True love, Scripture teaches us, it's not selfish, it's not idle, it's not lazy, it gives, it gives sacrificially. In my last church, I worked with young adults, I ended up uh, officiating at at a slew of weddings over the years, and at every wedding I would officiate, I offer this definition of love, love is living for someone else's good. Love is living for someone else's good. That is modeled by God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is a sacrificial love. Love, true love, does not take. It gives. Uh, If you love, you must give. And here the love is for God. And so it's a vertical love for God that translates into a horizontal labor. 
that manifests as serving. And the Greek word for labor is kopos. Kopos, which translates literally to intense toil to the point of exhaustion. I mean, that means you are laying it all on the field. I mean, you are giving everything you've got. You're holding nothing back. You're giving your all. What kind of toil is that? What are you toiling for? Are you toiling for temporary things? We live in a temporal world. Every believer should have that perspective that we see that this is a temporary world. And so we don't expend this kind of energy and labor on temporary things. We expend this kind of energy and labor on eternal things, things that last forever. And folks, there's only two things that last forever. You got the word of God and the souls of people. You invest in those things, you are gonna be doing exactly what God wants you to do. And then the last phrase in this line here is the steadfastness of hope. And so in keeping with the pattern, this is the steadfastness in serving the Lord that is produced by hope. Hope in what? What is your hope in? Christ is our hope. The Greek word for hope is elpis, Elpis means a confident assurance. Does the believer have a confident assurance? What do you have assurance in? You have assurance that because you are in Christ, that you will remain in Christ until the day of redemption, that he will not let you go. Amen? He says, all the Father has given to me, no one can take from my hand. Right? No one takes them from my hand, and you don't pry yourself out of his hand. So I believe that with all my heart that when you are in Christ, you are his eternally from now until forever. And there are some people who say, well, I don't believe in that once saved, always saved stuff. You know, because if you believe that once saved, always saved, that's just a license to live however you want uh, without fear of consequence. That is not the logic that Paul is using here at all. Let me show you in the scripture. What Paul is saying is this is a steadfastness produced by hope. If you have hope in the Lord, you know where you're going to spend eternity. He says, logically, that should result in a stick to in your life. Because you are not serving him out of fear that he's going to take the blessing away. You are serving him out of love. You are serving him because of hope. You are serving him because of the faith that is in you. And you keep on keeping on because you know where you're going. One day you're going to stand before an almighty God and anybody who believes that, and I mean really believes that, they don't want to waste a second on this earth. We just need to live like we believe it, all right? And so it's this assurance that leads this church in Thessalonica to stand strong amid mounting resistance. And they've got resistance. They've got persecution. Remember, their leader is gone. He's been forcefully removed. They are on their own. And now they're being persecuted. The first century church... They took a lot of persecution, and yet they are thriving. They're thriving. See, what's the purpose of persecution? Persecution is to put something down. Persecution is to crush a movement, and yet it did not crush them. They grew. They thrived. And by the way, historically, that has been the case. Whenever the church undergoes persecution, it always thrives. It almost makes you think that we ought to pray for some persecution sometimes. Somebody like, I don't know about that. But historically, it steals the church up. It purifies the church. The opposite, when the church is tolerated, 
That has the negative effect on the church. The church becomes wimpy. The church becomes mealy-mouthed, and it's compromised and corrupted. Constantine, in the Roman Empire, he just decided one day he was going to be a Christian, and he made it the law of the land. And now Christianity is the popular flavor, and everybody's a Christian. And our houses of pagan worship are now going to be houses of Christianity. But they just swapped all the names on the statues, and now we don't worship you know, Zeus and Hera and Apollo. We worship Joseph and Mary and Peter. And that's what the Roman brand of Christianity became for centuries until the Reformation set things right. And so it's persecution that purifies the church, not tolerance. Our goal should not be validation from the world. So you remember that the next time you get all huffy because somebody didn't write Merry Christmas on your red cup at Starbucks. All right? We don't need their validation. We serve Jesus no matter what. And that's not persecution, is it? Starbucks? No. I don't think so. And so this church, they are doers. They are not sitters. They do not give up. And they're taking initiative. They're not waiting. They don't have Paul to tell them what to do. They're just doing it. They're taking initiative. They're taking ownership. They are the body. They're like, we're the church. We got to be the church. And they're taking what they know, what Paul has taught them, and they're living it out. And they're not waiting for him to show them how to do it. I love it when my wife and I come home from somewhere and our kids, to our amazement, have somehow taken initiative. And they've washed the dishes. And they vacuumed. You know? Now that never happens, but when they do that, it's a blessing because we didn't have to even tell them. They would just tell, you know, this is our house too. We got to do this. I remember an illustration I heard uh, of a pastor in California. Uh, he preached a message, and when he was done, he was talking to people, and this lady came up to him, and she was just irate. She's ticked. And she says, I want to know something. Do you know that so-and-so has been in the hospital for three weeks? Three weeks. Not one person from this church has gone to visit him. Why, I've had to go myself and sit with him and bring him food and bring him cards and flowers and hold his hand and pray with him and minister to him. And I just want to know, where has the church been? And the pastor looked at her and says, sounds like the church has been doing exactly what it's supposed to do. She just hadn't made that connection. She's the church. We're the church. It's not a staff. And so Paul says that these guys are doing that. They are serving. And not only are they saved and serving, but they are selected. Number three, they are selected by God. Did you know you're selected by God? Look at verse four. It says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Underline that word chosen. What does that mean? What does that word mean? He has chosen you. If you are in Christ, you're a Christian, you have been chosen by God. It communicates that God has loved you and elected you. You are the elect of God. Now, some of you get a little nervous. You're like, wait a minute. Pastor Scott, are you, are you a Calvinist? Well, I'm not big on human labels. I just believe the Bible, okay? Is that all right with y'all if I believe the Bible? Okay. And so... The Bible says that God is sovereign in all things. Are we in agreement on that? That God is sovereign in all things. Not the least of which is the salvation of people's souls. God is sovereign in that too. Oh, by the way, I also believe in free will. Okay? 
I believe in the sovereignty of God and the free will of man because I believe the Bible. And the Bible says in Revelation 20, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So there's a will right there. I also believe Ephesians 1, which says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So you've got man choosing, you've got God choosing. You say, well, isn't there a tension there? Yes, there is. You say, are you okay with that? Yes, I am. You say, do you understand how that tension works? No, I don't. You know why? Because I got three pounds of fallen matter right here, same as you. But I have enough to understand that the Bible teaches both of these concepts, and so I believe them both, and I teach them both. And God can work it out. Just because my brain can't handle it doesn't mean that he doesn't have it all worked out. But what? don't miss the point here. The point is you're chosen. And when you receive that fact, it does something in you. You perceive a position that you have. There is a standing before God, and you understand your calling by God. And you've got a healthy perspective of who you are. You're like, this is my identity. I'm going to live according to my identity because I didn't create this identity. God gave me this identity. And I'm going to be a good steward of that identity because that's who he says I am. The world says you're one thing. God says, no, you're my child. Live according to that identity. And when you know that you've been chosen, you embrace it. And by the way, it not only gives you a sense of belonging and of purpose and of gratitude, it also helps you understand that since he chose me, he's going to equip me. He's going to empower me. I didn't just get saved and then he throws me to the wolves and says, good luck. He will give me everything I need because he's the one who placed me there by his sovereign will. And then in verse 5, Paul says, it's because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, what does that mean? It didn't just come in word. It came in power. Now, the gospel did come in word. When you came to Christ, you heard the gospel in word. It was spoken to you. But you did not just receive it because you had an emotional experience. You didn't just receive it because it was an intellectual revelation to you. Something supernatural took place. The Holy Spirit revealed himself to you, drew you, you responded to it, and then he indwelled you. It's not all here. It's not all here. It's a spirit-to-spirit connection that takes place. So you are saved supernaturally, and now you get to live supernaturally. The Holy Spirit empowers you, gifts you, functions through you. That's the only way to please God is to be indwelled by his spirit who alone knows the will of God. And there are people who come to some sort of faith because they've had some emotional experience and the only way that they could keep feeling like a Christian is to keep having emotional highs every single day. And what happens when they don't achieve that emotional high? They fizzle out. They bail. Some people come to some form of faith because of an intellectual aha moment, a convincing argument, and they say, okay, I can sign on to that. I'm convinced. And then their life from that moment forward becomes simply an intellectual doctrinal pursuit. And I love the pursuit of doctrine, but if that's all it is, what happens when they encounter something that they can't navigate intellectually, they fizzle out. They bail. Why? Because it was never real faith. It wasn't saving faith. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, who are you to say that they didn't have real faith, Pastor Scott? It's not me saying this. It's the Apostle John. John says, in 1 John, he says, they went out from us, meaning they left. 
They went out from us because they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. That's a hard pill to swallow for some people, but it's biblical that there is an irresistible draw that when you are in Christ, no one takes you from his grip, including you. And so this is what has happened. It's a real faith at work because it's a supernatural spirit thing. And then he goes on, and not only do we see that they're chosen and spirit indwelled, but number four, they are sanctified. They are sanctified. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. There was a change. These Thessalonians at one point were imitators of the world. They were idolaters. They did what the world did. Now they have encountered the living God, and now they are imitators of who? Well, he says, of us and the Lord. Us and the Lord. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know what that's called? That's called discipleship. And as you undergo discipleship, you participate in a process called sanctification, where through the Holy Spirit, God chips away at you and works on you and molds you and shapes you more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But discipleship, discipleship, churches struggle with discipleship. I've had people come to me, how do we do discipleship? How do we do it? We don't know how to do it. Churches don't know how to do discipleship. You know, we're good at evangelism. We're good at worship. We're good at building buildings. We're good at serving. We're good at community. We can have functions and all this stuff. How do you do discipleship? Well, there's no book you can read. There's no uh, 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 process that you implement. There's no video you watch or anything like that. There's no podcast, okay, that makes you a disciple. The oldest model of discipleship in the Bible is Paul's model. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's how you make disciples on the basic level, okay? That means that, that there would be people that Paul would pour into, Paul would follow Christ so that he is a reasonable facsimile of Jesus in flesh. And people close to him who wanted to be like Christ would do as Paul did. They would walk with him and they would imitate him. This is discipleship, all right? This is how it works. You know, when they, if Paul's following Christ and they're following Paul, who are they really following? They're following Christ, okay? That's God's design for discipleship. So, you know, that's what it's gotta, it's gotta be like. And you're like, well, I'm not Paul. Well, God doesn't need you to be Paul. He doesn't need Paul, he just needs y'all. <laughs> I said that earlier, I didn't even plan to say that, you know. But uh, it's true. This is his plan for all believers. You all need a Paul in your life. Who's your Paul? Do you have a Paul? That means a more mature believer. You know, it's like drafting in racing. And I'm not a big race fan, but I understand the concept. You get behind a car that's ahead of you, that's in the lead, and you follow that car. And there's less resistance and drag on you because they're doing the stuff. They're doing it. They're, they're in the lead. And it enhances your performance on the track. That's discipleship. Walk with me as I walk with Christ. Do as I do because I'm following him. And so everybody needs a Paul. Who's your Paul? And then everybody needs a Timothy. 
Everybody needs a Timothy. You don't just soak up the Jesus from somebody else. you got to pour it into somebody else who is less mature than you. And if they want to be like Christ and they willfully submit to being mentored, great. If, if they don't know, you just get close to them and walk with them and you mentor them without them knowing it. That's discipleship. All right? And the, and the product is a reasonable facsimile of Jesus. Everybody uh, mentors and everybody is mentored. We're going to be talking about that in this church as we move forward. And Paul says that for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. These folks went through affliction. They were in a godless culture. Are we in a godless culture, would you say, today? We've maybe been reminded of that in recent weeks. And we look at things, and by the way, uh, you know, I'm reminded of First Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 12. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Doesn't it seem like that's our world? That, that the righteous are maligned and, and mocked, and the evil ones are elevated and looked up to and promoted and put on a pedestal. Up is down, right is wrong, all of this stuff. And by the way, you don't get away from that. There's no state you can escape to. Everybody knows I came from California, and they think of that as that, you know, hellscape on the left coast, and would, would that God would just let it fall into the ocean, right? Make no mistake, I'm glad to be here, okay? Glad to be here. But I didn't flee because of the culture out there. I came because God called me here. But I, I understand why people would want to relocate. I get all that. But what has happened in recent years is that some conservative Christian people in California have relocated to states. And they look at states. And a lot of people went to places like, like Montana. Montana. You know, very traditional, very red state, very free state. All this stuff. People that had values kind of like theirs and all this stuff. They go up there. You know what happened in Montana a few days ago? A ballot measure was passed that said that if a baby survives an abortion, it is legal to let it die on the table. Montana. Not California, even though it's legal there too. But you can't get away from evil. And so in a dark, godless society, we must be a light. And this is number five. This church, they are standard bearers. They are standard barriers. There, there is a witness that has gone out. People see it. It is a visible living out of a lifestyle of godliness and the verbal testimony of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And what is happening here is truly amazing. He's describing pretty much all of Greece right here. It has just emanated from Thessalonica, the testimony, the witness. Paul didn't have to say a word about witnessing to this group of people. There's not a church in America that pastors don't have to remind to witness. Come on now, share your faith, share your faith. Here, let's give you all these tools to share your faith. He doesn't have to do that with them because they're doing it. And he knows they're doing it because look at verse 9. He says of the lost people that he encounters, the Greeks, the, the, the Gentiles, for they themselves report concerning us, Paul, Timothy, Silas, the kind of reception we had among you. 
He is hearing from lost people what's going on, what God is doing in Thessalonica. Paul doesn't even have to tell them what God did in Thessalonica because these non-believers are testifying about it. Folks, when you have lost people witnessing, that's a revival. Wow. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There was something so powerful about the transformation of these Thessalonian Christians. And this leads us into the final point. Number six, they are set apart. They are set apart. They're different. There's a difference. They are not like they used to be. They used to be idolaters. Now they are rabid Christ followers. They had a conversion. Something changed. There was a metamorphosis spiritually. They didn't remain in their old lifestyle. They didn't just add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. And there are people in church circles today who claim to have found Christ, but nothing in their life ever changes. They continue shacking up. They continue uh, consuming every substance under the sun. They don't change in their morality one iota. They just claim the name of Christ. We don't merge our sin with religiosity and expect uh, Jesus to tolerate and adapt to our worldliness. But sometimes it's hard even for people in the church to understand the whole aspect of transformation because it's mind-blowing the power of the gospel to change. Warren Wiersbe said, you cannot come into contact with Jesus and remain unchanged any more than you can come into contact with a 220-volt wire and remain unchanged. And it is a remarkable thing to behold. About 15 years ago, I went to Indonesia. I taught a class in a church planter school. It was a class on compassion ministries. And it was about uh, going out into the culture and finding people in need and meeting their needs with compassion and accompanying that with a gospel message. And so I was teaching these Indonesian students. I did not speak the language, and so I had an interpreter. And I put them through an exercise toward the end of the week. And this exercise was we were going to make a list of every people group in their culture that they could reach with compassion ministries in order to impart the gospel. And so we were writing down all of these groups on the whiteboard, and they had a lot of groups that we can't relate to in our culture. And one guy raised his hand, and he had a question, and he seemed uncomfortable, and the interpreter seemed uncomfortable, and he was asking about a particularly controversial segment of their culture. And I deduced in the interaction that he was speaking about the homosexual community. And he was aware that in America, homosexuality is widely embraced and even celebrated by even some in church. And they didn't know how to deal with it because not only were they opposed to it biblically, but it was outlawed in their own society because it's a Muslim nation. And so his question was, should we bother reaching out with compassion to people in that community who are oppressed by the government, should we reach out to them with the gospel? And I said, why, why wouldn't you? And he said, well, we don't want to be seen as condoning of their lifestyle. I said, hmm. So you, you feel that to reach out to them would be condoning? 
of their lifestyle. I said, let me, let me tell you a story. I have a friend. He's a good friend. He's a fabulous musician, phenomenal uh, pianist, singer. And when he was a young man, he grew up in a Christian home. He had a church experience, but in those churches that he attended, he did not find acceptance. And he perceived that he was rejected. And so that perceived rejection led him to seek intimacy in a variety of places. And this man ended up in a gay lifestyle. And he embraced homosexuality and he he fell headlong into that lifestyle. He kept it a secret from his family. Not many in his sphere knew about it. Some of his close friends knew about it. And he got deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And some friends who knew him, knew his story, out of love for him, reached out to him. They invited him to a Christian concert. And because of his interest in music, he went to this concert. And at that concert, he heard a straightforward message of the gospel. And it was not a message of condemnation. It was a clear-cut, truthful message of the reality that we are all sinners and that Jesus, God loved us, so he sent his son Jesus to die in our place to pay the price for our sin. And it's a free gift that can be yours. And if you receive it, you trust in what Jesus did for you. You can be forgiven and you can be changed and he will live in you. Your eternity is secure and he will make you able to serve him. And this young man responded to that message. And I told these Indonesian students, I said, and today that man is not a practicing homosexual. He is married to a woman and he has nine children. And they responded just like that. They praised God. They just gave glory to God. And they were shouting, you know? It just meant the world to them to hear that. It blew their mind. They couldn't even imagine that. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's not the end of the story. I said, as I said, this, this young man was a talented musician. And I walked over to the keyboard in the classroom. And I said, when he gave his life to Christ, he surrendered to a full-time worship ministry. And he became a prominent writer of many, many worship songs. And he wrote this song. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. a precious jewel Lord to give up I'd be a fool you are my all in all and when I sang those words that room of students came unglued they didn't know any English but this was one of the only songs that they knew in English it meant the world to them. It was a very, very important song to begin with to this group, but they just never knew the power of the transformed life behind it. And that revelation kicked off about an hour-long worship service in that room. 
and they glorified the Lord Jesus and that's what I think we ought to do right now let's sing this together up this passage he says that we wait for the son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come he delivers us because he is worthy and he longs to make you worthy and when you are worthy he desires that you know that you have been saved you are to be a servant you to recognize that you've been selected that you are being sanctified you are his standard in this world that is set apart for the glory of God and folks we're going to forge ahead to that end you and I let's pray Heavenly Father, I just give you glory. Thank you for bringing us to this place this morning to hear the truth of your word. I pray that your blessings upon all these wonderful people. We are excited about what the future holds, and we follow your lead. In Jesus' name, amen.